Today I'd like to, as we go to prayer, read from 1 Chronicles chapter 16. The context here is that David has brought the ark to the city of Jerusalem and into a tent that he has constructed. And this is, of course, before the temple was built by his son Solomon. And he's asked Asaph and his relatives to thank the Lord for what had been done. And this is part of Asaph's prayer. So I'd like to read these verses from 1 Chronicles chapter 16, beginning at verse 23. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim good tidings of His salvation from day to day. Tell of His glory among the nations, His wonderful deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He also is to be feared among the gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols. Father, we're so grateful that we know you, the true and the living God. And Father, this has been made so clear in, in the recent events that have transpired. As we who worship you are able to trust in you and, and pull uh, together in prayer and, and to seek your face for this nation. And we know, Lord, that it's so sad that the people who are perpetrating this are, are chasing after, as it were, idols. Lord, they're dealing with beliefs that are untrue, and somehow, Lord, the truth needs to reach the hearts of even these people. Father, as around the world, those missionaries who are working amongst the Muslims are in a very sensitive situation. We pray that you will be their strength and their protection, and that you will guide our president and the leaders of this country to uh, carry out activities that are wise and will not just be blind vengeance upon masses of people. We ask, Lord, that you will guide all that is done by your might and by your power. Father, we, we do pray that you will guide us here in our study this morning and that we will be directed by your spirit and understanding your word. We thank you now, Father, for all that you've done and for the blessings that you pour out upon our lives daily. In Jesus' great name, amen. One thing that comes through the email that I didn't know you remember if you were able to watch the speech George Bush gave before the nation. He referred to Lisa Beamer. Remember, he had her stand up and everything, and her husband. Well, they're CMA people, we find out. So that's pretty amazing that that should be true. So. There was another CMA couple on the same plane. That was the one that went down it. Pennsylvania, right. The one where he's the one that said, let's roll when they were going to take overthrow the uh, hijackers. She gave a testimony on uh, Larry King Live. Yeah, yeah, she was on Larry King Live too and, and gave a testimony there. So. so God's at work. He's there. And as we read today, great is the Lord. His name is to be praised above all others. In our study, we've been looking at David and a situation that developed between him and a couple of people in the wilderness of Maon. You remember that Saul had been pursuing David, and Saul, because of the humiliation that he experienced when David cut off the piece of his garment and, and Saul was, was shamed by the fact that David hadn't harmed him, that Saul called off his pursuit. But David, of course, didn't trust Saul, so he and his men are still hiding in the wilderness of Maon. And again, uh, we have a nice bright bulb here this morning, so that's nice. Let me just point out again that here's Hebron and here's Arad. About halfway between the two cities is Maon and Car Carmel, the two towns we're talking about. So we're talking about this region right 
right in here. David had instructed his men to provide protection for the local flocks and for the local herdsmen, uh, partly, of course, to, to gain favor with the local people since he was living there, and, of course, to uh, help, you know, earn a little living for his, for his men. Losses to wild animals, losses to thieves, losses to, to roaming bands of nomads were very common in those days. Again, uh, reminding you, there was really no law and order in the sense that we think of it today. If something happened to you, there was no police force you could call. I mean, Israel just barely had a king and, and a small army, and he wasn't about to be able to enforce law. Even when the Roman Empire existed and there was relative peace throughout the Mediterranean world, you didn't, there was no 911 to call. <laughs> uh, if you were in trouble, it would take you a long time before any help would come. And so, uh, you know, it was to the advantage of criminals in those days. So most of the help that David's men gave by, as, as the um, shepherd said, there, uh, David's men provided a wall of protection around us for 24 hours out of the day. That was not an insignificant thing. And most of the herd owners probably were very grateful and probably many of them gave David and his men a reward. However, one, and he is the focus of this chapter in, in 1 Samuel, where we're at, 1 Samuel chapter 25. One of them, who possessed probably the largest flock in the whole area, rebuffed David's men when they came at shearing time and said, look, we have protected your herds now. Why don't you share a little bit out of your bounty? We're not asking you for, quote, wages, but just a little gift from your bounty. At shearing time was a time of partying. The herds had survived through the year and the lambs had been dropped and, and now we've got all this wool that's being sheared and, and the wealth is, is, is coming in. And it was a time when normally the men who owned large herds shared, shared with others out of the bounty. But Nabal lived up to his name, which remember means fool, and flippantly rejected David's request. Out of here, he in effect said, I don't know you and I don't know your, your, your uh, leader David. There are a lot of people who are breaking away from their masters and running wild today. Well, hearing of Nabal's affront, David called his men to arms. And you remember last time as we read that, that passage, he left 200 men behind the guard to camp and he armed the other 400 and said, let's go guys, we've got a job to do. And he was going to lead a punitive expedition against Nabal and all that he had. But fortunately, one of Nabal's shepherds trotted the mile from Carmel where David had, men had spoken with uh, Nabal to Meon, where his house was and where his wife Abigail was living. He ran down there and he, he told the whole story to Abigail because he knew she was a wise woman, even if his boss was a fool. And he warned her of the impending disaster that is about to come upon the family and all that was possessed by the family. So let's read beginning at verse 18, 1 Samuel chapter 25. Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on the donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And it came about as she was riding on her donkey and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain that behold, David and his men were coming down toward her. So she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I 
guarded all that this man has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. May God do so to, my enemy, to, to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him. Abigail knew that it was either too late or too futile to try to go and talk to her husband Nabal. And so she immediately sprang into action. When she heard the word of the shepherd, she knew that she had better do something. And so she began to act. She quickly gathered all that was available. And you might wonder as you read that passage, why are five sheep already prepared? Well, we find out a little later on as uh, we read through the chapter that Nabal's about ready to throw a big party. And so that's why the five sheep were already prepared and probably why so many things were quickly available. What this does, of course, is indicate the wealth of the family, that this much could be available for her to pack up and move out to deliver to David. Now, of course, it's not much. Five sheep and 200 cakes of figs and 100 cakes of raisins and so forth is not a lot among 600 men plus their families. You know, you're trying to feed a thousand people. That isn't going to go very far, but it's a token. It's something. And that would not be lost on David. So Abigail, we're told, instructed her, some of her servants to put this caravan of food together. It's going to take quite a few uh, donkeys to haul this, uh, these goods. And to go on ahead, and she was going to follow on behind. She knew that her husband would not, would not approve of what she was doing. So she did everything to not let him know what she was doing. Of course, the mile between where he was and where her, she was at home helped that to be so. David was still a fugitive. Even though Saul wasn't at the moment actively pursuing him, he was still a fugitive. The wanted posters had not been taken down, as it were. And so David and his men were not about to walk right down the main road, you know, from their camp to Carmel. So they were going through the backside, through the ravines on the other side of the mountain. And yet somehow Abigail's servants knew where to go. They knew how to intercept David. Well, the passage tells us that David, well, tells us there in verse 21, David says, surely in vain have I guarded all that this man has in the wilderness. Now, whether that is <clears throat> spoken before he launches his attack, and that was what he said to his men, or whether this is what he told to Abigail as soon as he met her. We can't tell from the passage, but I think he did explain what it was he was about to do to Abigail. He had been treated badly by Saul. He had been uh, sold down the river, as it were, by, by his fellow countrymen who kept telling Saul where David was hiding. So David was very, very sensitive to anything that would appear to be harmful to his position. And so Nabal's actions were viewed by David as returning evil for good. And so it says in the passage, you have returned evil for good. So David was angry. How angry was David? David was so angry that he says, I'm going to leave a single male alive that belongs to Nabal. That doesn't only mean his sons were not told what his family was like, how many children he had, but we assume he had some sons. But it also meant all the shepherds and everybody else. Everybody that belonged to Nabal, who was a male, was going to be wiped out by David. Was David thinking God's thoughts? I don't think so. <laughs> That's why God says, sends Abigail. Nabal had offended David. So why is David going to take it out on the whole male population that belongs to Nabal? It's not right. And God sends Abigail 
to save him from his own folly. Think about poor Abigail. Sandwiched between a fool of a husband and a wise man who's acting like a fool that she has to go meet. So she's in a tough position. But she's up to the task as we see. Let's read on at verse 23. When Abigail saw David, saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. And she fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. Please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and of course, as I said, it literally means fool. And folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now let, then let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you all your days. And should anyone rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God, but the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from a hollow of a sling. And it shall come about when the Lord shall do for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and shall appoint you ruler over Israel, that this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord shall deal well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. And so David would do. We have to remember, Abigail is a wealthy woman. She is probably the most respected and prominent lady in the neighborhood. I mean, Carmel and Mayon were tiny little towns. We're not talking about metropolitan areas here. We're talking about tiny little villages. And, and, and so she was uh, certainly a leading lady in, in the region. And yet she was willing to humble herself before this ragamuffin fugitive whom she had heard about, but it's very doubtful she had ever met David before. Notice how she does it. When she, when she comes to David, she hops off her donkey and she bows on the ground before him, humbling herself, prostrating herself. And what does she do? She takes the blame. She said, all the blame be upon me, although she had had nothing to do with it directly. All the blame be upon me. I mean, isn't this the true uh, attitude of an intercessor? Remember when Ezra interceded? That's what he did. Even though he had not participated in the sin of the people, he said, upon me, O Lord, is the blame. And of course, David heard and listened to this woman. She pleaded with him, please, Listen to what I have to say before you go on and do this. And even though it doesn't say David said, please go ahead and speak, the fact that she takes, occupies the next seven verses with her plea before David indicates that he gave her permission to uh, speak. What we discover about this woman from this passage is truly amazing. We discover, first of all, 
that she knew the Lord. She was a true maidservant of the Lord God. We also discover she was a humble lady. We discover she knew how to intercede. We realize that she was a peacemaker. And probably the root of it all, she was a woman of great wisdom. No wonder she was called Abigail, which means source of joy. Notice how she refers to her husband. She calls him a man of Belial, which we've talked about before. A worthless man is what it means. That's really sad that she could refer to her husband as a worthless man. But he proves himself to be so. He was by his nature a fool. Now again, I mentioned to you before, it's very unlikely his parents called him Nabal when he was born. Now, I mean, the, the, the name Nabal became applied to him as he demonstrated his foolish ways as he became an adult and, and lived in the, in the region there. Matthew Henry, the commentator, uh, says this, she excuses her husband's fault by imputing it to his natural weakness and want of understanding. He is simple, not spiteful, she's implying. Forgive him, for he knows not what he does. This is what she, in effect, is saying to David. So the contrast between Abigail and Nabal is about as large a contrast as you'll find amongst human beings anywhere. She said, if she had seen David's men come, the outcome would have been different. She would not have allowed him to, to uh, flippantly blow off David's request, but she hadn't seen them come. She was in Maon. Uh, the men had come to her husband at Carmel. That was a mile away. So she had had no part in the actual communication. What's interesting is in the part of her speech, which is recorded here in verse 26, she is trying to convince David that the Lord had sent her, that really she came because she was empowered by the Lord because she wanted, and he, the Lord wanted him, to refrain from shedding innocent blood. We know from, the, from looking at it from hindsight that truly she was sent by God, and David would quickly discover that for himself. I think it needs to be pointed out that she was not just out to try to save or preserve her family. I think she cared enough about her husband to do what she could to intercede on his behalf. Uh, whether she had any children by Nabal, we do not know. I, as I mentioned when we first talked about this, I doubt she was Nabal's first wife. Uh, Nabal had probably been married before. He was an older man, and uh, she had then been given to him in marriage by her family. Uh, sort of the laser wolf, you remember we talked about that a little bit in Fiddler on the Roof where the Hulda was given to this 65-year-old man simply because he was the richest man in the, in the village and was a widower. It's probably a similar situation here. He probably had children, but probably by a previous wife who had uh, died or, or simply run away being married to him. So I, I think she's out to uh, preserve, preserve the family that she was mistress over. But I think at the same time, she wanted to preserve David's name from being sullied by putting his hand on people unjustly because it would have been viewed as vengeance rather than justifiable action. And that really, really does apply to our situation today. And we really need to pray um, that our leadership will, will have the mind of God and this won't be just smashing somebody just because we feel we need to get vengeance but it will be surgical action based on knowledge and information 
we really need to pray for our intelligence-seeking people that they get accurate information and that, uh, above all, we don't appear to be unjust. Abigail hoped that the gift that she brought would convince David of her sincerity and would cool his anger. And, of course, it, it does both. In verse 28 of this particular passage, uh, she says, Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant, again taking upon her the sin of her husband. But then she goes on to say, For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord, that is for David, an enduring house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. I mean, she is making prophetic statements here. I mean, how does she know this? Um, possibly she had heard that David had been anointed to be king after Saul. Possibly she knew some of the other prophecies that had been made by Samuel and Nathan and others. But it seems as if God has put it in her mind and that she is speaking prophetically herself. And so much so that Hebrew commentators, the, the rabbis that have studied this, have placed her in the category of a prophetess because of the statements that she makes here in this particular passage. The evangelical commentator, Ronald Youngblood, uh, points out that the imagery of, of verse 29 is very apropos to David because, as you know, David was raised as a shepherd. And let, let me read verse 29 again. And should anyone rise up to pursue you and seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God, but the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. The bundle of the living uh, refers to the shepherd's pouch. The shepherds in those days carried a little pouch like some people do, a little fanny pack or something, wrapped around their waist in which they kept their food and their valuables and pretty much everything that was important to them was kept in this little pouch. And you also know they carried a sling with which they would sling stones to defend themselves and to defend their herd. So she is using those two examples here from David's background to make this prophetic statement further. She is saying basically, if anybody is against you, God will put you in this bundle, in this pouch, just as you put your valuables in your pouch to protect them. And yet on the other hand, just as you sling a stone and it goes far from you, so David will put your enemies in the, in the sling and fling them far from you. She is rhetorically brilliant, you know. And I think she is also inspired by the Lord in what she says here. Well, she brought her plea to a very logical and powerful conclusion. She knew herself as well as she knew that David was aware of the fact that vengeance belonged to the Lord. That is stated over and over again in Scripture, Old and New Testament. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Therefore, she urged David specifically to not cause himself, and, and this is what she says in the passage, grief or a troubled heart by having shed blood without cause. In essence, she was arguing that if David took revenge by his own hand, rather than acknowledging that vengeance is God's prerogative, that he would not only offend God, but he would sully his own name before his own people. Verse 32, Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed be your discernment. And blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed from, and from avenging myself by my own hand. 
Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left to Nabal until the morning light as much as one male. So David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up to your house in peace. See, I have listened to you and granted your request. Then Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she did not tell him anything at all until the morning light. But it came about in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, that his wife told him all these things, and his heart died within him, so that he became as a stone. David was impressed. David was impressed by the humility of this woman and by the discernment of this woman, Abigail. So he pronounced the blessing of the Lord upon her and sent her on, on her way home in peace. And, she, and he, he, in effect, acknowledges that you have spoken God's words to me. That's one of the reasons why David is, stands out from so many of those in the Old Testament. He was teachable. This is one of the most important attributes that should belong to a Christian. Teachability. The willingness to realize you don't know it all. And, and that others can teach you something. That God can speak to you through almost anybody. David is teachable and he recognized. I mean, what can I say? In that day, women were generally not held in high esteem. And most men weren't willing to listen to a woman. But David listened, and, and David blessed her and acknowledged that she had spoken God's word to him. He recognized, of course, that he had been blinded by his pride and by his emotions, and that he was about to preempt God's prerogative to avenge personal injustice. Let's turn back for a moment to Deuteronomy chapter 32, reading at verse 35. Deuteronomy 32, 35. Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. For the Lord will vindicate his people and will have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their strength is gone and that there is none remaining bond or free, God will stand up for his people. God may not do it the way his people would think of doing it and in the time frame that they might wish it to be to occur, but God stands up for his people. And so David is submitting to the truth of that word. Now we have to remember this is an individual affront against an individual. This is not a national attack like it recently happened. Uh, we're, we're talking in a different category here. I think personally, you and I have no right to carry you know, hatred against uh, any people, any religion, any people group. But as a nation, of course, our leadership does have the responsibility to deal with criminal activity in the way that God has allowed nations to do. But again, we need to pray wisdom, as I said, that it not be done in a foolish manner, just as David's actions would have been folly if he had wiped out all the males simply because Nabal, one man, who was by nature a fool, had offended him. Abigail is praised by David for acting quickly. She didn't uh, decide she needed to have a conference and figure out trying to what to do, you know, and, 
and dilly-dally around. She just went out to do what she had to do right now. David accepted the gift of food that Abigail had provided and had sent her on her way in peace. When she arrived home, she found her husband. He was home and he was having a party. The man who would not share his surplus with David and his men was squandering that very surplus in a party for himself and his buddies. The scripture says that he was throwing a feast like the feast of a king. In other words, he spared no expense in whining and dining his friends and buddies to impress them all with what a great man he was. We're told in this particular passage that his heart was merry because he was drunk. So the reason people get drunk is to dull their senses, to, to, to wash away their pain and, and to become happy. It's like putting a Band-Aid on a gigantic gaping wound, you know. It does, no, it does nothing but aggravate the situation. In spite of his many blessings, in spite of what God had done for him and what David and his men had done for him, Nabal was totally ungrateful. And the problem was that he had offended David. And who was David? The anointed king of Israel, the man to replace Saul as king. And on top of that, David had an army of 600 men. A little foolish, to say the least, to offend such a man. No wonder he was Nabal. In the face of this, he dared to drink himself into nirvana. This reminds me of another man in scripture that I think most of us are familiar with, only he was even a bigger fool than Abel in some ways. Let me read from Daniel chapter 5. You know this story, I'm sure, very well. But this man was an even greater fool in the face of even greater destruction. His name was Belshazzar. He was the king. Actually, he was the king's son, technically, but he was the king in Babylon because his father was off in Arabia. He held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, that's his ancestor, not his actual father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, in order that the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. And they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. The party was too dull, you see, before. Just plain old ordinary cups. Let's drink out of sacred cups. That, that we're worthy of that. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. <laughs> Great picture. The king called aloud to bring up the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, any man who can read the inscription and explain its interpretation to me will be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as the third ruler of the kingdom. Third ruler, why? Because his father was the first ruler. He was the second ruler. Uh, then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. 
this great hand, I think literally carved the words into the plaster of the wall of the palace. And as the pieces of plaster rained to the floor and everybody stood there dumbfounded as the words were written up there, they weren't words that were unknown, but they were words whose meaning was unknown to Belshazzar. If we go over a little bit later in the passage to verse 22, this is after Daniel has been called in. Yet you, his son Belshazzar, referring to Nebuchadnezzar, the, his ancestor, who had also acted foolishly and God had humbled him, and then he had proclaimed the Lord to be the true God. He says, then, yet you, his son, his, his descendant, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord God of heaven, and you have brought the vessels of his house before you, you and your nobles, your wives, your concubines, men drinking wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God who's in whose hands are your, very, your life breath and your ways, you have not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. Now this is the inscription that was written out, Mene, Mene, Tikul Farsan. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put it to an end. Tikal, you have been weighed in the scales and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and to the Persians. You see, he was having a party while outside the gates of his city were armies of the enemy. But he was trusting in the stone walls of his city to be strong enough to hold out the enemy so he could have a party and just thumb his nose at the people out there who wanted in to the city. And that very night, the Medes and the Persians got into the city and his life was taken from him. We talk about a fool. Belshazzar was one of the greatest fools of all history. And Nabal was simply a, ma a small version <laughs> of Belshazzar. And his, his destruction would be the same. Abigail waited until the next morning, wisely. Why talk to a guy who's totally stoned out of his mind? And, and she waits till the next morning and, and he's uh, sobered up. And she tells him how close he came to being annihilated the day before. And the scripture, obviously he believed her because the scripture says his heart died within him so he became as a stone. He was so frightened that he went into a virtual trance and remained that way until the Lord finally just extracted his soul from him ten days later. Some commentators believe they had a heart attack and then just lingered for ten days until he died. Others believe that when it says his uh, heart turned, that what happened was that he hardened his heart like Pharaoh did, that he rejected the warning and that he would not repent or admit to his folly. And so the Lord gave him, after 10 days, just took his, took his life. Whatever the case, the result was the same. This man who, who had acted so foolishly and would not listen to the voice of a wise woman to whom he had been married, obviously she had spoken truth to him for years and he had rejected it, and so God simply said, you know, it's appointed unto man once to die, and so that's what happened to him, and he faced God's judgment. But of course the story goes on with David, and David would become so impressed with Abigail, as we'll discover in the next passage next week, that he will invite her to marry him. But there's a kind of interesting story behind that too. So we'll, we'll look at that next Sunday.